0: You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. When I was a younger man, um, I I worked in a church as a youth pastor and it was a a hectic time in our our family. Um, I was also in seminary had a, a bunch of little kids running around, still have that by the way. Um, and I needed a side job to, to help make ends meet. And so I, I took a job at a nearby school as a janitor. And just as a side note, I, I'm very proud of my janitorial skills. So I've talked with some of you about this when it comes to cleaning and things like that. I've learned, I learned things in those years that uh, have stuck with me. Um, but during those janitor shifts, what would I do? I would do what you would imagine I would do. I'd clean lunchrooms. Um, I would unlock doors at certain times of day. I would make sure other doors remained locked. Um, I would clean up messes when a student got sick. I'll just leave it at that. Right? That was the least, least fun part. Um, I learned the purpose of, of sawdust um, for a janitor. I'd pick up trash. I'd wash windows. I would you know, refill paper products and bathrooms and, and so on. I mean, the, the main task of a janitor, my main task, uh, can be summed up in one word. It was to maintain, right? To, to maintain the grounds. Now, no one, this is not going to surprise you, but no one came to the school to have a meeting with me or the other janitorial staff. There was no parent-janitor conferences. Um, our, our staff was not a part of faculty planning meetings or, or anything like that. But think, think of this. No one knows the ins and outs of a facility like a janitorial staff, right? No one knew that building like we did. Everything around us, we knew where, where it was, we knew how things worked, when there were problems that we were uh, requested, when people couldn't find things, when things were broken we knew the ins and outs of that facility. Now, you you might be going, what in the world does this have to do with Psalm 84? Well, Charles Spurgeon calls this psalm the pearl of the psalms. He says this, and, and this is high praise. He says, no music could be too sweet for its theme or too exquisite in sound to match the beauty of its language. He goes on, he says, if Psalm 23 is the most popular in the 103rd psalms, the most joyful. In the 119th psalm, the most deeply experiential. And the 51st psalm, the most grieving. Then this psalm, Psalm 84, is one of the most sweet of the psalms of peace. It was his favorite psalm. Well, did you know that Psalm 84 was written by janitors in the house of the Lord? to the sons of Korah were. Were. If you go back and you read First Chronicles, as the temple is sort of being described and jobs are being divvied out, we read that the sons of Korah had this very specific task of being doorkeepers in God's house, which, by the way, the word janitor, that's the etymology, it means doorkeeper. So the sons of Korah were not like the sons of Asaph. We're going to look at a psalm next week from a son of Asaph right? The the sons of Asaph were the musicians in the house of the Lord, right? They were were the the worship team. They had a more public, identifiable job. You could even say they had a more glamorous role in the worship of the, the temple, nor were the sons of Korah like David. We know that David wrote many of the Psalms. Who was David? He was this famous poet warrior king, The sons of Korah were sort of in the background, easily forgotten. And their responsibilities included included the menial tasks of taking care of God's house. They weren't tasked with writing hymns or psalms for the people of Israel. They were the janitors. But because of this, no one lingered longer in or near the temple than the sons of Korah. No one was so close to the, the worship continually as the sons of Korah, and though their job was, were these seemingly meaning uh, menial tasks, they didn't begrudge their work. Even though they were easily overlooked, they delighted in the privilege so much because they loved being in the presence of God, being in and around corporate worship, so much so that they wrote a hymn about it, Psalm 84, and 10 other psalms as well. Not because they were required to, not because because it was their task, but because they so loved God and His people in worshiping Him that it just overflowed out of the Psalms of Korah. So their work may have been menial and unnoticed, but it certainly was not meaningless, right? It afforded them this opportunity to dwell in the presence of God. So much so that they would say this, the theme verse of this psalm, right, is verse 10. In case you're wondering, they would say, and they're not being hyperbolic here, they're saying, a day in the courts of the Lord is better than a thousand days anywhere else. It's a high claim. And so as we study this psalm this morning, the question, the question for you and I is very simple. Can we say the same? Can we say we long for God like the sons of Korah do here? Is verse 10 true of us? In a sentence, the psalm calls us to long for God's presence and to find our strength and provision by trusting in Him. That's the message. It's very simple. The psalm is broken down um, into three statements of blessing. If you're looking down at your your Bible, you can see this. Verse 4 is the end of the first section. It says, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Selah. Then verse 5 is the beginning of the next uh, section that ends in verse 8. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways of Zion. And then verse 12 is the end of the final section. Uh, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That's an intentional breakdown of the psalm in uh, the writing of this piece of poetry. And using this framework, we're just going to work through this psalm with three questions. Number one. Are you longing for God in corporate worship? See that in verses 1 through 4. Number two, are you finding strength in God? Verses 5 through 8. And then number three, are you trusting in God's provision and protection? Longing, finding strength, and trusting in the Lord. Number one, are you longing for God in corporate worship? Let's read the first few verses again to the choir master. According to the Gitith, which was a, some sort of either musical term or an instrument, a psalm of the sons of Korah, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. So the psalmist begins by telling us how beautiful and lovely the dwelling place of God is. He is talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's saying, I love going to the temple, being in the place of corporate worship, where the people of God come together to worship God, I absolutely love it, and the place is a lovely place. And He loves it so much. He tells us that when He is away, when He can't, for whatever reason, worship with God's people, His soul longs for it. His soul faints for it. He feels like something is missing when He can't, for an extended period of time, worship God with the people of God. He's in essence saying, if we were to, to modernize it a bit, he's in essence saying, I am just so desperate. To be with my church family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to worship Him. It's something I long for. It is a lovely thing. And notice the reason that the place is lovely to the psalmist. Notice this. It's not primarily because of the ornate beauty of the temple. Which, by the way, that's true. You can go back and read not only the, 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 the temple, but before that, the tabernacle, this mobile... Uh, place of worship that would move around as God's people were traveling through the desert. Both of those were incredibly beautiful things. They were absolutely works of art, and God planned it that way. But the psalmist is not saying he he loves to go there like you and I might love to to go see an old historic building on the Freedom Trail, or like we would like to, we we would love to go to an art exhibit and sort of, he's not saying this as I love going here sort of as as a tourist observer. That's not the beauty of the temple. Why is the temple beautiful to him? Because God dwells there. How lovely is your dwelling place, O God. It's not about the building. It's not about the ornate beauty of this place. It's beautiful because the beautiful, holy, righteous, just, gracious, loving God dwells in this place place. It is the court of the Lord, it is His house. And the people who long for that, people who long for God's presence in corporate worship are blessed. Now if you were to read statistics on the Christian church in America in recent years, you will find all sorts of studies and stats that church attendance is in decline, and that's true. We're in increasingly, you know, secular culture. There's all sorts of reasons people aren't coming to church. But what can happen is the church, when, when, when we hear sort of that message, like we're in trouble, people aren't coming to church, the temptation can to be, re- to, be re- to respond in a very American, like prag- a pragmatic way and say, okay, well, what do we need to do to start drawing people in here? Right? What do we need to, to switch up to get people in? How can we draw people in? Maybe we can have some programs. Maybe we can, and here's what often happens, maybe we can soften some of the rough edges of Scripture that offend people, and it would make it, it would make Christianity a little more palpable. There's all sorts of things that we can do there. But friends, when that happens, the church begins to cater to the desires of people who do not long for God. And do you hear what the psalmist is telling us here? When that happens, the, the question shifts from a godly one, does God dwell here, that's where the beauty is, to a, an ungodly one, are our, our felt needs being met? Are my desires being met? The doorkeeper here, he's so enamored with a longing for God, you don't really hear anything about his preferences for the temple. He doesn't say well, I, I love the temple, but I wish they had this program for me. I wish they'd they you know, sort of meet this need that I would have. No, he says, that's where God is, and I want to be there. This, is, this place is lovely, not because of anything else, but because of the presence of God. And friends, listen, though it may seem counterintuitive to us, here's the reality. The most attractive thing to the world around us is not a church that treats people like customers, And we're offering a product. The most attractive thing around us is a church full of people from different backgrounds, different experiences, different ethnicities, but all drawn in under one thing, the beauty of God in a unified purpose to worship Him in His loveliness. That's what's beautiful to the psalmist. Verse 3 gives even a hint at this sort of how attractive this is. There's this poetic image here. Even the birds of the air are drawn to the house of the Lord and they find a home there. So he describes this this nesting swallow on the temple buildings, sort of a poetic way of saying, hey, listen, all who are weary can come here and find rest. All who are outsiders can come in and believe in this Lord and find rest and see the beauty of God here. All are welcome to turn from their sins and to see the beauty of God. Now, we have to to do some sort of historical, where, where are we in the place of redemptive history in this? Because as New Testament Christians, we're people this side of the cross, this was written before Christ came, we no longer have a temple to go to. So when we want to worship God, we don't have to go over to Jerusalem and find a, a temple. We're told that Jesus is the dwelling place of God among men. John chapter 1, John chapter 2, which we'll look at later. And guess what? He has filled us with His Spirit, and so we are, too, as His people, we who are Christians, are the dwelling place of God. And wherever we gather as Christians to worship the living God, we do so as God's house. So I, I don't think anybody is, is talking about the, the ornate beauties of the Boys and Girls Club on a Sunday morning. Though I'm very, This is a great building. Don't mishear me. And I'm sure sparrows would love to nest in some of the crevices on the outside, right? But what makes this a church, what makes this a dwelling place of God is not sort of any physical structure. It is the fact that God's people who have trusted in Christ, the true and greater temple, and who have received His Spirit in our dwelling places of God's Spirit. When we gather, we are the house of God. What an incredible reality. God dwells here among us. And so here are some things as you're asking yourself this question. Ask yourself, do I long for God, not just personally, though that's certainly part of it, but do I long for God in corporate worship? That's what we're doing now, gathering weekly together. Do I long for God in corporate worship with my church family? Maybe some things to help cultivate that. Think about this. Consider what happens when we gather. We hear God speak through His Word, not through any one person, But through His Word. That's why we preach the Scriptures. Not because it's one way of doing it other than other ways of of having church, but because this is God's very Word. I have nothing in and of myself to give you. The only usefulness of of preaching is, is God's Word being opened up to the people. When that happens, we hear God speak through His Word, we sing the truths of the gospel together. And we don't just sing them to God, Paul tells us in Colossians, we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Colossians 3, to one another as we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. So we are encouraging one another to look to God as we sing truths to God and to one another. We gather as a, a family. We encourage one another in our walks with, with Christ. We experience just the ordinary means of God's grace. Prayer, preaching, taking the Lord's Supper together. And when God saves sinners, we celebrate new life in Christ through baptism. Outside of Sunday morning, we gather in smaller groups to open up the Word and say, hey, here's what we heard on Sunday. How can I take it and press it even deeper into my life? How can I help you do that, brother? How can I help you do that, sister? And all of this, all of this holds up the beauty of the Lord that we would gaze upon Him. So friends, consider what actually happens when we gather. It's much more than just a weekly meeting on our calendars. God dwells here. But also, let me encourage you just to some practical things to prepare to gather with God's people. We're in a season of back-to-school stuff. I'm sure some of you have, if you're not a parent shopping for back-to-school things, you've seen uh, people at Target do such things. There's a Target theme today in church. I don't know why. They don't sponsor me, but that's what happens, right? Back-to-school is about preparation, we want to be ready because you don't want to show up on the first day of school, no pencils, you don't know where your class is, you don't know what you're doing, right? It's important to prepare. And likewise, friends, we should prepare our hearts and minds when we come to gather with God's people. Read and reflect on the passage that will be preached beforehand. Pray, pray for a longing for God. You and I, we're, throughout the week, we're just, we're just kicked in the face by the world around us, right? We're distracted. I'll be honest with you. Most Sundays, I wake up, and I don't know I'm the pastor, I'm not supposed to say this, and I go, I don't really want to go to church today. Now, the difference between you and me is like, I actually have to come, right? But li- I just go, I want to sleep in. I want to rest. What if I cultivated preparation in my heart, praying, this is not just about me, it's about my brothers and sisters, What if I prayed for those in my gospel community or those who I know are in the church that the the word that we're going to hear would impress upon them. Pray for the church as a presence in this community. Pray that the Spirit would bless the church. All sorts of things that you can do to prepare your heart very practically. Plan your Saturday evenings well so that you can show up attentive and ready to gather with God's people to serve and be served. And let me just say, as a church that has for six years now, next month will be six years as a church, I am so encouraged by how our church family shows up early, stays late, serves, Uh, one another, it it truly is an exemplary picture of what we're talking about here. There is an eagerness to meet with God's people. And let me, I just want to stoke that flame into a fire. Praise God for that. It's an encouragement to me. I think it's a blessing to those around us as well. And then just meditate on this verse. Blessed are those who dwell in His house, ever singing His praises. That's number one. Are you longing for God in corporate worship? Number two, are you finding strength in God? So he moves on and he speaks of another blessing in verse 5. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways of Zion. So the psalmist says something here that's it's really the opposite of our modern way of thinking, right? Where, do we, where are we told to find strength? The message we hear is about the self-made person. Find your strength uh, within. Uh, person be fully independent. That's sort of the exemplary person in our culture. This self-reliance as, as a religion is very common. Or, or what happens is we, we easily develop unhealthy codependency upon others. And we say, "I can't really find my strength unless I find it in this relationship with another person." And the psalmist comes along and says, "No." Blessed are those who find their source of strength in God. That is the true source of strength. Not full independence or unhealthy codependence, but a dependence upon the Lord as your strength. Then, he says, Blessed are those in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. Now, this is kind of hard. Commentators have wrestled with what this means. We're not really sure. He may be talking about just the desire as a pilgrim, to get to the temple in Jerusalem. It might be this sort of physical plan of a pilgrimage. Or it may mean that in this person's heart, there is an ultimate desire to worship God. I think both of those are good, and it's likely both. Someone longs to be with God, as we talked about in number one, but also in this person's heart, they just long to not just be in corporate worship, but to to follow and worship God. But either way, whatever, whatever that verse means, we know that this journey is met with hardship. That's what he says in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So what is this valley of Baca? So these people, they have this desire in their hearts, leads them to Zion, leads them to worship God, but they're going through a valley of Baca. That word Baca means weeping. It's a valley of weeping. Now, we don't know where this place is. It might not be an actual physical place. It may, may just be metaphorical. And it's a poetic way of saying, listen, Christian, you follow Christ, and if you do, you will endure valleys of suffering. Very similar to the most famous psalm, Psalm 23, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we could go around this room, and we can hear stories, past and present, of valleys of weeping in our lives. Some of you heard that illustration, valleys of weeping, and you go, I know exactly what he's talking about whether it's from our own sin or it's sickness or natural disasters or just life in in a fallen world. And what the psalmist is saying is your strength to endure, to walk through those valleys is not found in anyone else. It's not found within yourself. It must be from the Lord. If not, as you walk through those valleys, you will dry up. But if your strength is in the Lord, you will endure. The Apostle Paul puts it, puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 1.9. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's like saying, we've, we were walking through the valley of weeping. He's talking about suffering for the sake of the gospel. But then he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Who raises the dead. What is Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 1 9? We were walking through the valley of weeping, but God was our strength. We we were taught to rely upon Him. But notice what else the psalmist tells us here. Not, Not only do we have strength to endure the dry valleys of weeping, but our strength in the Lord makes the valleys places of springs as we walk through them. Often when we're walking through suffering, our primary request as Christians is, Lord, how can you get me out of this? Right? I think that's fine. God promises that here. In verse 7, he says he will do that. Each one appears before God in Zion. So that's God's way of saying, listen, don't worry, I will see you through. But before verse 7, there's verse 6. Which tells us that, listen, God has a greater purpose for your valleys just than getting you through them. He actually desires to strengthen you so much as you walk through suffering, so fill you with joy that as you walk through this broken and fallen world, you're actually watering the ground around you. You're you're giving the hope of the gospel to those around you. See, when the, when the world watches Christians suffer or endure pain and hardship, but we complain and grumble while we do it, we send the message that God is not really a true source of strength and joy, right? We, we sound like the world around us. When we look at the fallenness of this world and we become cynical and bitter, we're just like everyone else. When we do that, when we suffer... And become cynical because of it. We're not commending Christ to our neighbors. But when we walk through those valleys. And the Lord is our strength. I'm not saying put on a happy face. We've been walking through the Psalms all summer. We know that's not what we're talking about. But when we walk through these valleys of weeping. And we rejoice because we know the Lord is our true strength. We know he'll see us through. The world says there's something different about these people. There's something unique about it. What what is it? And we get to say, his name is Jesus, and we water the dry ground around us. I remember sitting with Judy Turner. She was a member at a church where I was a pastor in Georgia, and her cancer had returned, and this time it was in her brain, and her death was inevitable. And the last time I, I sat with her to just talk and pray with our other pastor, and it was great she she loved theology so she's just giving me these books you know she's like i'm not going to need these anymore in a, in a in a few months and we we were sitting down and talking and i just remember her talking about she said i've never sensed a joy and strength in the lord more in my life than i am right now she she knew she was going to die She knew what was coming. She was walking through a valley of of weeping, but she felt so close to the Lord, and she would tell everyone around her who listened, Christians, family, non-Christians, neighbors, everybody, about the joy that the Lord had given her, about the truth of the gospel as she faced her impending death. And, And I remember sitting there reflecting on that conversation with Judy and feeling both rebuked and encouraged. I felt rebuked because I thought, "How often do I complain about the smallest inconveniences in my life? I am, by nature, I'm just going to be honest with you a grumbler, a cynic. Right? I'm hypercritical. And that conversation with Judy, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, just used that to, to rebuke me as I watched a saint suffer so well. And not grumble and complain, but find her strength in the Lord. And it also encouraged me because I saw Psalm four six in action. This wasn't just a platitude that would look great on a coffee cup. This was a saint who was living it out. It was on display in high definition. And if a sister like that could do that, that's hope for all of us, right? And she walked through this valley of of weeping, and she made it a place of springs. She found her strength and joy in the Lord, and then her life ended, and she appeared before God in Zion. Praise God for it. So church, let's not just get through the valley of this life. I think that's the encouragement for us here. Let's make sure that's not the only question when we face suffering. I just want to get through it. Let's answer God's call to find our our strength and our joy in him so that we can water the dry ground around us with the hope of the gospel. And friends, every time we gather, every time we worship, every time we come on a Sunday morning or in a gospel community or when we crack open our Bible at home or we're in the prayer closet, what are we doing? We're coming to the reservoir of God's strength. We're filling up our lives. We're being filled with living water. And then we walk out these doors— We close our Bible, we go to work or wherever, we go out through the dry valleys of this world, and we water the ground around us. That's what God's called us to. So friends, find your strength and joy in the Lord. And then third and finally, are you trusting in God for provision and protection? Verse 8, he says, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer, give ear. O God of Jacob, Selah, behold our shield. O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So the psalmist uses two images here to expound upon trusting in the Lord. He talks about the Lord as A sun and a shield. Did you pick up on that? Verses 9 and verses 11. He says, in doing so, he's saying, God, you're my provision, you're my protection. The sun speaks to the provision of God. Nothing's more essential to earth than the the heat and light of the sun. Without it, there's no food. We couldn't survive. We would die instantly. Likewise, God is a sun. He is the source of everything we have. He is our ultimate provision. Therefore, we're to trust in him for all things. Remember Psalm 145 last week? God, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalms here here is saying, God, you are a son, you are my provision. And we're, we're given this surprising promise in verse 11 here, when he says that God withholds no good thing from his children, from those who walk uprightly. We need to camp out on this verse for a moment. If God withholds no good things from those who walk uprightly, that means He only gives good gifts to His children. Right? That's the logic there. And, and we have to wrestle with this a bit, don't we? Because we have this biblical conviction that while we are responsible humans, right? We're not robots. But, but Scripture is also clear that God is totally sovereign over all things. So if God is totally sovereign all, over all things... And he only gives good gifts to his children. That's tough for us because each of us can go around and we can point to things that have happened in our lives that we would say are not good things. Right? So we have to say, okay, what, what is really being said here? Does God give us bad things or not? Now, I realize this is, a, uh, this is like its own sermon kind of question. Okay? God's sovereignty and, and suffering. But this verse is, is a key verse on that question, because according to verse 11, God only gives good things to His children. He never withholds blessing from us. So, this means that in the hands of a sovereign and good God, even hardships, even sufferings, even the valleys of weeping are for our good. It's to say, God, you know what I need more than I do, and I trust you. It's to say, God, I'm I'm having a really hard time seeing how this difficulty is a blessing right now, but I know that you withhold no good thing from me. I trust in you. We see this all over Scripture. Some of you were with us when we walked through Genesis. This is to say with Joseph, the man who was abused by his brothers. Remember that story? Thrown and sold into slavery, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned. But later said to his brothers, right, his enemies, later said to them, Genesis 50, 20, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Or it's to say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8:28. We know that for those who, who love God, all things, easy and difficult, Suffering and blessing, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And later Paul gives a gospel reason. Who, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God only gives good blessings to his children. But sometimes that comes in the form of difficulty and suffering. I have found that one of the the greatest tools to strengthen my faith in hard times and valleys of weeping is reading the stories about the faith of of Christians in church history. I think that's biblical, by the way. Hebrews 12 tells us we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that help us press on in in our faith. And as I was studying this week for Psalm 84, I was reminded of George Mueller of Bristol. He was a pastor in Bristol, England. He was a man of great prayer and faith. He also founded orphan houses. He's most famous for that and cared for more than 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. And he kept a very detailed journal that is later published, and there's an autobiography as well. And in 1870, after 39 years of marriage, his wife Mary contracted rheumatic fever, which was a death sentence. And as Mueller was reflecting in his journal, he found solace in Psalm 84, 11. And here's what he wrote. The last portion of Scripture, which I read to my precious wife, was this. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing with, will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Psalm eighty four eleven. Now, if we have believed, here's what he says. If we've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've received grace, we are partakers of grace, and to all such he will give glory also. I said to myself, with regard to the latter part, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I am myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, listen to this, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied in God. And listen to this, church. And all this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. Friends, let me me encourage you to take God at his word. Make, make Psalm 84 the ballast in the ship of your life. You guys, raise your hand if you know what ballast is. It's the weight in the bottom of the ship, the extra weight that's kept in the hole so that it's stable in the water, so it doesn't tip over. Now, how, how do you and I know verse 11 is true of us? It says it's, this is for those who walk uprightly. You might go, and I've, I've I thought this the first time I read this verse. You might go, man, I'm a mess sometimes. I don't always walk uprightly. But did you hear what Mueller said? He said, Christ is my righteousness. Christ has died for me. He's paid for my sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the psalmist doesn't say, blessed is the one who works hard at his own righteousness. Right? Blessed is the man who... Goes to all the men's Bible studies. Or or blessed is the, the woman who serves most in church. No, blessed is the one who trusts in him. Our uprightness is not dependent upon us. Our full provision and protection is found in Christ. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. And if that is you, if you've trusted in Christ, the Lord is a sun and shield for you. He is your protection and provision, and no good thing will he withhold from you. And when we put all this together, the longing for God, the finding our strength, our joy, our protection, our provision in God, you can sum it up, as we said before, you can sum it all up with verse 10. If this is true of God, friends, and it is, why why would we not say, Lord, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of this wickedness. Lord, give me more of you. Now, as we close, consider this. We see this completely fulfilled in Christ. In John chapter 2, we hear Jesus say, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." The Jews then said, "'It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days?' But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken." We're once again pointed to the hero of Scripture, Jesus is the object of our faith and worship. Jesus is the dwelling place which we long for. Jesus is where we see the beauty of God together. And so let's, let's prayerfully ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, are, are we longing for God in corporate worship, both with the church but also in our private lives? Are we, are we finding our strength and joy in Christ as we walk through the dry valley of this world? And are we trusting in Christ for provision and protection? Let's linger long in the presence of God, church.